You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. His name was Asa Brooks, and a fun fact about that, he's actually buried, Asa Brooks is underneath the current Presbyterian Church. They buried him under the building. That's Crystal Weimer, executive director of the Harrison County Historical Society based in Clarksburg, West Virginia, just a few miles from where most of the Uncle Abner stories take place. She joins us to discuss the history of religious denominations in Harrison County and the role they play in the vibrant cultural life of the area even today. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post. The Wrong Hand, read by Eric Wagoner. Abner never would have taken me into that house if he could have helped it. He was on a desperate mission, and a child was the last company he wished, but he had to do it. It was an evening of early winter, raw and cold. A chilling rain was beginning to fall. Night was descending, and I could not go on. I had been into the upcountry, and had taken this short cut through the hills that lay here against the mountains. I would have been home by now, but a broken shoe had delayed me. I did not see Abner's horse until I approached the crossroads, but I think he had seen me from a distance. His great chestnut stood in the grass plot between the roads, and Abner sat upon him like a man of stone. He had made his decision when I got to it. The very aspect of the land was sinister. The house stood on a hill. Round its base, through the sodded meadows, the river ran, dark, swift, and silent. Stretching westward was a forest, and for background the great mountains stood into the sky. The house was very old. Its high windows were of little panes of glass, and on the ancient white door the paint was seamed and cracked with age. The name of the man who lived here was a byword in the hills. He was a hunchback, who sat his great rowan as though he were a spider in the saddle. He had been married more than once, but one wife had gone mad, and my uncle Abner's drovers had found the other on a summer morning swinging to the limb of a great elm that stood before the door. A bridal rein knotted around her throat and her bare feet scattering the yellow pollen of the ragweed. That elm was, to us, a dual tree. One could not ride beneath it for the swinging of this ghost. The estate, undivided, belonged to Gaul and his brother. This brother lived beyond the mountains. He never came until he came that last time. Gaul rendered some accounting and they managed in that way. It was said that the brother believed himself defrauded and had come finally to divide the lands, but this was gossip. Gaul said his brother came upon a visit and out of love for him. One did not know where the truth lay between these stories. Why he came we could not be certain, but why he remained was beyond a doubt. One morning, Gaul came to my uncle Abner, clinging to the pommel of his saddle while his great horse galloped to say that he had found his brother dead, and asking Abner to go with some others and look upon the man before one touched his body, and then to get him buried. The hunchback sniveled and cried out that his nerves were gone with grief and the terror of finding his brother's throat cut open and the blood upon him as he lay ghastly in his bed. He did not know a detail, he had looked in at the door and fled, 
His brother had not got up, and he had gone to call him. Why his brother had done this thing he could not imagine. He was in perfect health, and he slept beneath his roof in love. The hunchback had blinked his red-lidded eyes and twisted his big hairy hands and presented the aspect of grief. It looked grotesque and loathsome, but how else could a toad look in his extremity? Abner had gone with my father and Elnathan Stone. They had found the man, as Gaul said, the razor by his hand, and the marks of his fingers and his struggle on him and about the bed, and the country had gone to see him buried. The hills had been afire with talk, but Abner and my father and Elnathan Stone were silent. They came silent from Gaul's house. They stood silent before the body when it was laid out for burial, and, bareheaded, they were silent when the earth received it. A little later, however, when Gaul brought forth a will, leaving the brother's share of the estate to the hunchback, with certain loving words and a mean allowance to the man's children, the three had met together, and Abner had walked about all night. As we turned in toward the house, Abner asked me if I had got my supper. I told him, yes, and at the ford he stopped and sat a moment in the saddle. Martin, he said, get down and drink. It is God's river, and the water clean in it. Then he extended his great arm toward the shadowy house. We shall go in, he said, but we shall not eat nor drink there, for we do not come in peace. I do not know much about that house, for I only saw one room in it. That was empty, cluttered with dust and rubbish, and preempted by the spider. Long double windows of little panes of glass looked out over the dark, silent river slipping past without a sound, and the rain driving into the forest and the loom of the mountains. There was a fire, the trunk of an apple tree burning with one end in the fireplace. There were some old chairs with black haircloth seats and a sofa, all very old. These the hunchback did not sit on, for the dust appeared when they were touched. He had a chair beside the hearth, and he sat in that, a high-backed chair made like a settee and padded. The arms padded, too, but there the padding was worn out and ragged where his hands had plucked it. He wore a blue coat, made with little capes to hide his hump, and he sat tapping the burning tree with his cane. There was a gold piece set into the head of this black stick. He had put it there, the gossip said, that his fingers might be always on the thing he loved. His gray hair lay along his face, and the draft of the chimney moved it. He wondered why we came, and his eyes declared how the thing disturbed him. They flared up and burned down, now gleaming in his head as he looked us over, and now dull as he considered what he saw. The man was misshapen and doubled up, but there was strength and vigor in him. He had a great cavernous mouth, and his voice was a sort of bellow. One has seen an oak tree dwarfed and stunted into knots, but with the toughness and vigor of a great oak in it. Gaul was a thing like that. He cried out when he saw Abner. He was taken by surprise, and he wished to know if we came by chance or upon some errand. Abner, he said, come in. It's a devil's night, rain and the driving wind. The weather, said Abner, is in God's hand. God, cried Gaul. I would shoestrap such a god. The autumn is not half over and here is winter come and no pasture left and the cattle to be fed. Then he saw me, with my scared white face, and he was certain that we came by chance. He craned his thick neck and looked. Bub, he said, come in and warm your fingers. I will not hurt you. 
I did not twist my body up like this to frighten children. It was Abner's God. We entered and sat down by the fire. The apple tree blazed and crackled. The wind outside increased. The rain turned to a kind of sleet that rattled on the window glass like shot. The room was lighted by two candles in tall brass candlesticks. They stood at each end of the mantelpiece, smeared with tallow. The wind whooped and spat into the chimney, and now and then a puff of wood smoke blew out and mounted up along the blackened fireboard. Abner and the hunchback talked of the price of cattle, of the black leg among yearlings, that fatal disease that we had had so much trouble with, and of the lump jaw. Gaul said that if calves were kept in small lots and not all together, the black leg was not so apt to strike them, and he thought the lump jaw was a germ. Fatten the bullock with green corn and put it in a car, he said, when the lump begins to come. The Dutch would eat it. And what poison could hurt the Dutch? But Abner said the creature should be shot. And lose the purchase money and a summer's grazing, cried Gaul. Not I. I ship the beast. Then, said Abner, the inspector in the market ought to have it shot, and you find to boot. The inspector in the market, and Gaul laughed. Why, I slip him a greenback, thus, and he set his thumb against his palm. And he is glad to see me. Gaul, bring in all you can, said one. It means little something to us both. And the hunchback's laugh clucked and chuckled in his throat. And they talked of renters, and men to harvest the hay and feed the cattle in the winter. And on this topic Gaul did not laugh. He cursed. Labor was a lost art, and the breed of men run out. This new set were worthless. They had hours, and his oaths filled all the rafters. Hours? Why, under his father men worked from dawn until dark and cleaned their horses by a lantern. These were decadent times that we were come on. In the good days one bought a man for two hundred eagles. But now the creature was a citizen, and voted at the polls, and could not be kicked. And if one took his cane and drubbed him he was straightway sued at law, in an action of trespass on the case for damages. Men had gone mad with these new-fangled notions, and the earth was likely to grow up with weeds. Abner said there was a certain truth in this, and that truth was that men were idler than their fathers. Certain preachers preached that labor was a curse, and backed it up with scripture. But he had read the scriptures for himself, and the curse was idleness. Labor and God's book would save the world. They were two wings that a man could get his soul to heaven on. They can all go to hell for me, said Gaul, and so I have my day's work first. And he tapped the tree with his great stick, and cried out that his work hands robbed him. He had to sit his horse and watch, or they hung their scythes up, and he must put sulphur in his cattle's meal, or they stole it from him, and they milked his cows to feed their scurvy babies. He would have their hides off, if it were not for these tender laws. Abner said that, while one saw to his day's work done, he must see to something more. That a man was his brother's keeper, in spite of Cain's denial, and he must keep him. That the elder had the right to the day's work, but the younger had also his right to the benefits of his brother's guardianship. The fiduciary had one to settle with. It would go hard if he should shirk the trust. I do not recognize your trust, said Gaul. I live here for myself. For yourself, cried Abner. And would you know what God thinks of you? And would you know what I think of God? cried Gaul. What do you think of him? said Abner. I think he's a scarecrow. <laughs>
said Gaul. And I think, Abner, that I am a wiser bird than you are. I have not sat cawing in a tree afraid of this thing. I have seen its wooden spine under its patched jacket and the crosspiece peeping from the sleeves and its dangling legs, and I have gone down into its field and taken what I liked in spite of its flapping coat-tails. Why, Abner, this thing your god depends on is a thing called fear, and I do not have it. Abner looked at him hard, but he did not answer. He turned instead to me. Martin, he said, you must go to sleep, lad. And he wrapped me in his greatcoat and put me to bed on the sofa behind him in the corner. I was snug and warm there, and I could have slept like Saul, but I was curious to know what Abner came for, and I peeped out through a buttonhole of the greatcoat. Abner sat for a long time, his elbows on his knees, his hands together and his eyes looking into the fire. The hunchback watched him, his big hairy hands moving on the padded arms of his chair and his sharp eyes twinkling like specks of glass. Finally Abner spoke. I judged he believed me now asleep. And so, Gaul, he said, you think God is a scarecrow? I do, said Gaul. And you have taken what you liked? I have, said Gaul. Well, said Abner, I have come to ask you to return what you have taken, and something besides, for usury. He got a folded paper out of his pocket and handed it across the hearth to Gaul. The hunchback took it, leaned back in his chair, unfolded it at his leisure, and at his leisure read it through. A deed in fee, he said, for all these lands, to my brother's children. The legal terms are right, doth grant with covenants of general warranty. It is well drawn, Abner, but I am not pleased to grant. Gaul, said Abner, there are certain reasons that may move you. The hunchback smiled. They must be very excellent to move a man to alienate his lands. Excellent they are, said Abner. I shall mention the best one first. Do, said Gaul, and his grotesque face was merry. It is this, said Abner. You have no heirs. Your brother's son is now a man. He should marry a wife and rear up children to possess these lands. And, as he is thus called upon to do what you cannot do, Gaul, he should have the things you have to use. That's a very pretty reason, Abner, said the hunchback, and it does you honor, but I know a better. What is it, Gaul? said Abner. The hunchback grinned. Let us say, my pleasure. Then he struck his bootleg with his great black stick. And now, he cried, who's back of this tomfoolery? I am, said Abner. The hunchback's heavy brows shot down. He was not disturbed, but he knew that Abner moved on no fool's errand. Abner, he said, you have some reason for this thing. What is it? I have several reasons for it, replied Abner, and I gave you the best one first. Then the rest are not worth the words to say them in, cried Gaul. You are mistaken there, replied Abner. I said that I would give you the best reason, not the strongest. Think of the reason I have given. We do not have our possessions in fee in this world, Gaul, but upon lease, and for a certain term of service. And when we make default in that service, the lease abates, and a new man can take the title. Gaul did not understand, and he was wary. I carry out my brother's will, he said. 
But the dead, replied Abner, cannot retain dominion over things. There can be no tenure beyond a life estate. These lands and chattels are for the uses of men as they arrive. The needs of the living overrule the devises of the dead. Gaul was watching Abner closely. He knew that this was some digression, but he met it with equanimity. He put his big, hairy fingers together and spoke with a judicial air. Your argument, he said, is without a leg to stand on. It is the dead who govern. Look you, men, how they work their will upon us. Who have made the laws? The dead. Who have made the customs that we obey and that form and shape our lives? The dead. And the titles to our lands? Have not the dead devised them? If a surveyor runs a line, he begins at some corner that the dead set up, and if one goes to law upon a question, the judge looks backward through his books until he finds out how the dead have settled it, and he follows that. And all the writers, when they would give weight and authority to their opinions, quote the dead. And the orators and all those who preach and lecture are not their mouths filled with words that the dead have spoken? Why, man, our lives follow grooves that the dead have run out with their thumbnails. He got on his feet and looked at Abner. What my brother has written in his will I will obey, he said. Have you seen that paper, Abner? I have not, said Abner, but I have read the copy in the county clerk's book. It bequeathed these lands to you. The hunchback went over to an old secretary standing against the wall. He pulled it open, got out the will and a pack of letters, and brought them to the fire. He laid the letters on the table beside Abner's deed and held out the will. Abner took the testament and read it. Do you know my brother's writing? said Gaul. I do, said Abner. Then you know he wrote that will. He did, said Abner. It is in Enoch's hand. Then he added, but the date is a month before your brother came here. Yes, said Gaul. It was not written in this house. My brother sent it to me. See, here is the envelope that it came in, postmarked on that date. Abner took the envelope and compared the date. It is the very day, he said, and the address is in Enoch's hand. It is, said Gaul. When my brother had set his signature to this will, he addressed that cover. He told me of it. The hunchback sucked in his cheeks and drew down his eyelids. Ah, yes, he said. My brother loved me. He must have loved you greatly, replied Abner, to thus disinherit his own flesh and blood. And am not I of his own flesh and blood, too? cried the hunchback. The strain of blood in my brother runs pure in me. In these children it is diluted. Shall not one love his own blood first? Love echoed Abner. You speak the word, Gaul, but do you understand it? I do, said Gaul, for it bound my brother to me. And did it bind you to him, said Abner. I could see the hunchback's great white eyelids drooping and his lengthened face. We were like David and Jonathan, he said. I would have given my right arm for Enoch, and he would have died for me. He did, said Abner. I saw the hunchback start, and, to conceal the gesture, he stooped and thrust the trunk of the apple tree a little farther into the fireplace. A cloud of sparks sprang up. A gust of wind caught the loose sash in the casement behind us and shook it as one, barred out and angry, shakes a door. When the hunchback rose, Abner had gone on. If you loved your brother like that, he said, you will do him this service. 
you will sign this deed. But Abner, replied Gaul, such was not my brother's will. By the law these children will inherit at my death. Can they not wait? Did you wait? said Abner. The hunchback flung up his head. Abner, he cried, what do you mean by that? And he searched my uncle's face for some indicatory sign, but there was no sign there. The face was stern and quiet. I mean, said Abner, that one ought not to have an interest in another's death. Why not? said Gaul. Because, replied Abner, one may be tempted to step in before the providence of God and do its work for it. Gaul turned the innuendo with a cunning twist. You mean, he said, that these children may come to seek my death? I was astonished at Abner's answer. Yes, he said, that is what I mean. <laughs> Man, cried the hunchback, you make me laugh. Laugh as you like, replied Abner but I am sure that these children will not look at this thing as we have looked at it. As who have looked at it? said Gaul. As my brother Rufus and Elnathan Stone and I, said Abner. And so, said the hunchback, you gentlemen have considered how to save my life. I am much obliged to you. He made a grotesque, mocking bow. And how have you meant to save it? By the signing of the deed, said Abner. I thank you, cried the hunchback, but I am not pleased to save my life that way. I thought Abner would give some biting answer, but instead he spoke slowly and with a certain hesitation. There is no other way, he said. We have believed that the stigma of your death and the odium on the name and all the scandal would in the end wrong these children more than the loss of this estate during the term of your natural life but it is clear to me that they will not so regard it, and we are bound to lay it before them if you do not sign this deed. It is not for my brother Rufus and L. Nathan Stone and me to decide this question. To decide what question? said Gaul. Whether you are to live or die, said Abner. The hunchback's face grew stern and resolute. He sat down in his chair, put his stick between his knees, and looked my uncle in the eyes. Abner, he said, you are talking in some riddle. Say the thing out plain. Do you think I forged that will? I do not, said Abner. Nor could any man, cried the hunchback. It is in my brother's hand, every word of it. And besides, there is neither ink nor paper in this house. I figure on a slate. And when I have a thing to say, I go and tell it. And yet, said Abner, the day before your brother's death, you bought some sheets of fool's cap of the postmaster. I did, said Gaul, and for my brother. Enoch wished to make some calculations with his pencil. I have the paper with his figures on it. He went to his desk and brought back some sheets. And yet, said Abner, this will is written on a page of fool's cap. And why not, said Gaul? Is it not sold in every store to Mexico? It was the truth, and Abner drummed on the table. And now, said Gaul, we have laid one suspicion by looking it squarely in the face. Let us lay the other. What did you find about my brother's death to moon over? Why, said Abner, should he take his own life in this house? I do not know that, said Gaul. I will tell you, said Abner. We found a bloody handprint on your brother. Is that all that you found on him? That is all, said Abner. Well, cried Gaul, 
Does that prove that I killed him? Let me look your ugly suspicion in the face. Were not my brother's hands covered with his blood, and was not the bed covered with his fingerprints where he had clutched about it in his death struggle? Yes, said Abner, that is all true. And was there any mark or sign in that print, said Gaul, by which you could know that it was made by any certain hand? And he spread out his fingers. As, for instance, my hand. No, said Abner. There was victory in Gaul's face. He had now learned all that Abner knew, and he no longer feared him. There was no evidence against him. Even I saw that. And now, he cried, will you get out of my house? I will have no more words with you. Be gone. Abner did not move. For the last five minutes he had been at work at something, but I could not see what it was, for his back was toward me. Now he turned to the table beside Gaul, and I saw what he had been doing. He had been making a pen out of a goose quill. He laid the pen down on the table, and beside it a horn of ink. He opened out the deed that he had brought, put his finger on a line, dipped the quill into the ink, and held it out to Gaul. Sign there, he said. The hunchback got on his feet with an oath. Begone with your damned paper, he cried. Abner did not move. When you have signed, he said. Signed, cried the hunchback. I will see you and your brother Rufus and El Nathan Stone and all the kit and kittle of you in hell. Gaul, said Abner, you will surely see all who are to be seen in hell. By Abner's manner, I knew that the end of the business had arrived. He seized the will and the envelope that Gaul had brought from his secretary and held them out before him. You tell me, he said, that these papers were written at one sitting. Look, the hand that wrote that envelope was calm and steady, but the hand that wrote this will shook. See how the letters wave and jerk. I will explain it. You have kept that envelope from some old letter, but this paper was written in this house, in fear, and it was written on the morning that your brother died. Listen, when Elnathan Stone stepped back from your brother's bed, he stumbled over a piece of carpet. The underside of that carpet was smeared with ink, where a bottle had been broken. I put my finger on it, and it was wet. The hunchback began to howl and bellow like a beast penned in a corner. I crouched under Abner's coat in terror. The creature's cries filled the great, empty house. They rose a hellish crescendo on the voices of the wind, and for accompaniment the sleet played shrill notes on the window panes, and the loose shingles clattered a staccato, and the chimney whistled, like weird instruments under a devil's fingers. And all the time Abner stood looking down at the man, an implacable, avenging nemesis, and his voice, deep and level, did not change. But before that, we knew that you had killed your brother. We knew it when we stood before his bed. Look there, said Rufus, at that bloody handprint. We looked, and we knew that Enoch's hand had not made that print. Do you know how we knew that, Gaul? I will tell you. The bloody print on your brother's right hand was the print of a right hand. Gaul signed the deed, and at dawn we rode away with the hunchback's promise that he would come that afternoon before a notary and acknowledge what he had signed. But he did not come, neither on that day nor on any day after that. When Abner went to fetch him, he found him swinging from his elm tree. 
Many days out of the week, you'll find Crystal Weimer in a white office with drop ceilings and fluorescent lights, plotting new developments for the Harrison County Historical Society. There's plenty going on, since they recently moved their archives and museum into a larger facility on West Main Street in Clarksburg. In 2019, they released a new exhibit entitled Revealed, A Glimpse Behind the Curtain of Harrison County's Women. They host history and culture roundtables, and online they post virtual lectures and flashback Fridays on Facebook. Crystal is also the current president of the West Virginia Association of Museums, which holds an annual conference and supports the state's museums big and small through workshops, advocacy, and facilitating communication and partnerships. For more on that, you can check out museumsofwv.org. So you can imagine I was pretty lucky to get some time with Crystal to sit down and give me some insights on the history of religious denominations in Clarksburg, at least in the time leading up to Uncle Abner. Before we jump in, however, a couple of notes on Harrison County. Since a lot of the history Crystal and I will be talking about takes place before the Civil War, just like the Uncle Abner stories, Harrison County was at that time still part of Virginia, since West Virginia hadn't separated itself yet. Harrison County was partitioned from Monongalia County by the Virginia legislature in 1784, a year after the American Revolution ended. As a matter of fact, the county is named after Benjamin Harrison, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, governor of Virginia from 1781 to 1784, and father of later president William Henry Harrison. You wouldn't know it from looking at a map today, but Harrison County was once Virginia's largest, west of the Allegheny Mountains, stretching all the way from the border with Maryland to the Ohio River, and almost halfway down into the present-day state of West Virginia. The thing is, though, there were no Virginia constitutional limits on the creation of new counties until 1851, so the sprawling mega-county that Harrison used to be was whittled down over the course of about seven decades. As a matter of fact, if you live in any of the following 17 present-day West Virginia counties, you may reside in what used to be Harrison. Randolph, Wood, Lewis, Pocahontas, Jackson, Braxton, Marion, Barber, Ritchie, Taylor, Gilmer, Wirt, Upshur, Pleasance, Tucker, Calhoun, and Webster. If you live in Randolph, Wood, or Lewis counties, it's a guarantee since those were carved wholesale from Harrison in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Luckily, most of the places we'll talk about today reside within the county's current borders, so it shouldn't be too confusing. Now, we'll let Crystal take us back to colonial times. So obviously we have to pick up with white settlement before the revolution and afterwards. Starting out, you're going to have a lot of Protestant Christian denominations that are very decentralized and democratic. So mainly Methodists, Baptists, and a little later on the Presbyterians. You don't need a lot of hierarchy with those particular denominations, the exception maybe being the Presbyterians where you don't need to have a hierarchical structure or a bishop telling you when you can set up your church or how to get a minister. You literally can just set one up. So that's kind of why those denominations are popping up in and around in Harrison County prior to the revolution and after that. To dig a little deeper into what Crystal is calling a decentralized and democratic church, 
one has to remember that the Puritans, some of New England's first European colonists, were religious dissenters and objected to strong central church authority, such as that exercised by the Pope in Rome over the Catholic Church, or the structures of the Anglican Church in England, which they had fled from. They didn't like answers being handed down from on high, and believed that each individual had a personal relationship with the divine, which had to be worked out between that individual and their God. To quote Dorothy Davis, author of History of Harrison County, The Baptists in 18th century America were so uncompromisingly opposed to centralized control that some members did not welcome to their associations anyone who had to do with the missionary societies. Quote, We further say to the churches, have nothing to do with the Bible Society, for we think it dangerous to authorize a few designing men to translate the Holy Bible. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free, and be not entangled with the yoke of bondage. This decentralization was not only an issue of religious dogma, it was also practical. The settlements of western Virginia were widely scattered, connected by dirt roads, if you were lucky roads which tended to become mud during the long winters and springs. In July 1788, Bishop Asbury, a Methodist trying to reach a quarterly meeting in Clarksburg, described how difficult the trip was. We journeyed on through devious lonely wilds where no food might be found, except what grew in the woods or was carried with us. One evening they came upon a lonely homestead, where some of the group slept outside, and Bishop Asbury lay along the floor on a few deerskins with the fleas. That night our poor horses got no corn. The next morning they had to swim across the Monongahela. After a twenty-mile ride we came to Clarksburg, and man and beast were so outdone that it took us ten hours to accomplish it. Because of the distances and poor transportation networks, it eventually wasn't uncommon, according to Davis, to see small churches every five miles or so, often built on the hilltops so people living in the hollers on either side could get there easily on Sunday. So you can see why the denominations that didn't rely on central leadership from far away might have flourished along the mountainous frontier. The first actual established church in Harrison County would be Simpson Creek Baptist Church, and that was in 1774. Oftentimes, the Methodists and the Baptists would share the same meeting house or little church building because it took time to build things back then. And then, of course, the Presbyterians started coming in, and the, the church here didn't start until like around the 1820s, but they had to ask for a minister. So the first Presbyterian minister actually had to be recruited here. His name was Asa Brooks, and a fun fact about that, he's actually buried. Asa Brooks is underneath the current Presbyterian church. They buried him under the building. Another fun or interesting denomination that comes onto the scene in this colonial period and a little bit afterward are the Seventh-day Baptists, which how that's different from other Baptists are that they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday as opposed to Sunday. They called the folks who celebrated the Sabbath on Sunday the First-day Baptists. Seventh-day Baptists, there were churches in New Jersey and there was other smaller ones in Maryland and Pennsylvania. The bulk that came to Harrison County that ended up settling in what is now Salem, West Virginia. They all came from one congregation, 72 members of one congregation from Shrewsbury, New Jersey. 
came down in 1790. They made a couple stops in Maryland and then Pennsylvania and Morgantown, but they really didn't like it. And then Samuel Fitz Randolph had some parcels of land in what is now Salem, West Virginia. And they're like, well, let's go down there and set up our church. And so they did. The whole 72 of them came down and set up there in what was then called New Salem, but it's now Salem. The Seventh-day Baptists are the ones who developed Salem College, which is now Salem University. So there's a presence there still. So that's one segment of Seventh-day Baptists. And then there was another set that stretched from Quiet Dell in Harrison County all the way down to Lost Creek around there and then eventually stretch down to Hacker's Creek and they set up a church. They're like 1795 so they're on the heels of the folks from Shrewsbury but the folks that settled in Lost Creek and set up the church there they hooked up with the folks from the original Shrewsbury church when they were in Maryland with Samuel Fitz Randolph so they knew that they these folks were going down there and so eventually they followed them down there. It's said that the settlement of Seventh-day Baptists stretched along the river from Salem to Parkersburg, almost an unbroken chain of Seventh-day Baptists through that section, and then another unbroken chain from Quiet Dell to Lost Creek. For those unfamiliar with the terrain, Salem is about 13 miles from Clarksburg, and the stretch from Salem to Parkersburg is another 60 miles, which would have been very difficult going in 1794 when Salem was first established. The way became much easier in 1838 when the Northwestern Turnpike arrived. A road project funded by the state of Virginia in 1831, the Northwestern Turnpike connected from Parkersburg all the way back to Winchester, Virginia, a distance of over 200 miles in about as straight an east-west line as you can go, no easy feat through the mountains. The road was built to make transportation to the frontier easier so that Virginia wouldn't be left behind on lucrative trade as similar roads began to snake out from New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. As for Quiet Dell, Lost Creek, and Hacker's Creek, which Crystal mentions, you can hit all of those places in that order if you head south on Highway 79 from Clarksburg. But of course, the pioneers of this period didn't have Highway 79. So what else do they have in common? A more appropriate way to think of Harrison County while we talk about early colonization is to picture it as one big watershed for the West Fork River, which flows northward from the present-day Stonewall Jackson Dam near Weston, rolling through the heart of Clarksburg and a few of the other places you'll hear about, like Lumberport and Shinston, until it joins forces with the Tigard River in Fairmont to form the Monongahela, which then, of course, keeps rushing northward through Morgantown to Pittsburgh, where it joins the Ohio. A lot of what you could think of as subregions of Harrison County are named after tributaries of the West Fork River. Hacker's Creek is one, as are Lost Creek and Ten Mile Creek, both of which you hear mentioned in the Abner stories. So as you can see from the areas Crystal is talking about, many of the patterns of settlement simply follow the rivers and creeks as settlers continue to move in and claim land. That's colonial. Now, if you go into the Antebellum, as we start getting the road, so we have the Northwestern Turnpike, now Route 50, through Clarksburg, and eventually we do get the B&O Railroad. So when those two sources of transportation are open up, of course, that brings people, that brings goods, that bring businesses. It's a travelable east-west corridor. That's going to open up the land and more people are going to flood in. So that's when you start seeing the more hierarchical churches, like the Episcopalians. 
She's not kidding when she says the Episcopal Church got a late start in Harrison County compared to the Baptists and Methodists. The Protestant Episcopal Church was founded, essentially, as the successor to the Church of England after the American Revolution severed Episcopalians in the colonies from their organizational hierarchy across the Atlantic. It was tough going at first, because about 80% of Episcopal clergy during the Revolution had been loyalists to the English crown. Up until the Civil War, their numbers in Harrison County were very small, and their clergy were spread out. According to the lengthy tome, Records of the Protestant Episcopal Church in Western Virginia and West Virginia, published in 1902, in the 1840s when the Episcopal minister in Clarksburg decided to leave his post, for quite some time afterward, Reverend Thomas Smith regularly rode 85 miles on horseback from Parkersburg to Clarksburg to ensure that the small Episcopal flock there didn't wither away completely. And we don't have a Catholic church in Harrison County. We don't have Immaculate Conception until 1864. But the Diocese of Wheeling was encouraging the priest that was scheduled in Weston as early as 1850 to start coming up and tending to the religious needs of the Irish immigrants that were working on the railroad here at the time, sending essentially a circuit-riding priest up here to Clarksburg, and then they eventually get their established church during the Civil War. Um, Same thing with the Episcopalians. They start setting up their church, again, as the wealth from some other industry that we're going to talk about here in another episode, um, you know, that's when they're coming in. And then we also see at this time, due to the question of slavery and the divisions caused by slavery, you see a lot of some of the mainstream Protestant denominations see these schisms, as we talked about earlier, the Methodists kind of fracture apart. The Presbyterians eventually fracture into the Presbyterian Church and then the Southern Presbyterian Church. And these are all very much centered around slavery issues. For those less familiar with West Virginia during the Civil War, it can be tempting to oversimplify the region's sympathies, because it separated from eastern Virginia to rejoin the Union. But the examples of sharply divided so-called border states like Kentucky and Missouri, which never formally seceded because their populations were so evenly split between the northern and southern causes, might be a more accurate way to think about it. Western Virginia's northern counties spearheaded the effort to become a separate government, and their proximity to loyal states like Pennsylvania and Ohio kept them securely in the Union camp. But the southern half of the state, especially from Charleston southward, largely threw in its lot with the Confederacy. Plenty of soon-to-be West Virginians fought on both sides. Case in point, famous General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson was born in Clarksburg and fought for the Confederacy. On the other hand, John Carlyle, a former representative of Barber County, a staunch Unionist and resident of Clarksburg during the war, was one of the newly formed state's first United States senators. Just before the war, 1860 census records show only 614 black people in Harrison County out of an overall population of 13,790, or just under 5% of the total. But out of that number, 582 were enslaved leaving only 32 as free people. The original West Virginia state constitution only called for the gradual emancipation of slaves, but that was superseded when Congress passed the 13th Amendment the year the Civil War ended in 1865 and immediately abolished slavery nationwide. After the Civil War emancipation, 
You see the rise of African-American churches. The Mount Zion Baptist Church was sponsored by the Clarksburg Baptist Church. And you start to see the emergence of African-American Methodist Episcopal churches as well. That's also due to migration from the Jim Crow South. The folks are fleeing the terror in the Deep South. But also there's really good economic opportunity for them up here. And so they make that journey, and we have quite a few AMA churches. You mentioned something a second ago for the Catholic Church out of Weston, this circuit-riding priest. Mm -hmm. And this is something I'd love to know more about because there are circuit-riding pastors that pop up a couple of times in the Abner stories. Was that something that was widespread in this area? Yes. So a circuit-rider would be you would have one minister that would— like every other Sunday, go to a different church in the area within that denomination. So one Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, he's, I don't know, in Buckhannon. And then he goes to Weston the following week. They float. I want to say that circuit riding deals more with those denominations that need seminary trained ministers presbyterians you know you had to you have to request one from the presbytery but the methodists could probably have one person float but you normally when a presbyterian sends out that's your that's your minister (laughs) that's who you get and in fact sometimes if a church in the presbyterian denomination cannot i read in Dorothy Davis's history of Harrison County, where they had a salary for a minister, but they couldn't find one that would accept the salary. So sometimes you have to wait for someone, and they went a while without having a minister, and that can sometimes happen. Crystal says this antebellum period of agrarian living, scattered settlements, and little one-room white churches with steeples gradually gives way to something a little more cosmopolitan after the Civil War. Clarksburg during the war, for example, had a population of only 800 and was so badly laid out that its roads were frustrating to the Union Army quartermaster who was stationed there. But afterward, things sort of exploded. With the industrialization that opens up opportunities, again, more movement of people. We had an oil, gas, and railroading, and glass, and oh, what else do we have? Coal, coal. How could I forget coal? After the Civil War, we have Italians, Eastern Europeans. We have a Greek Orthodox population come in. They mainly worked out of the Phillips tin sheet mill. They set up in Summit Park, and voila, you have a Greek Orthodox church for the first time. You might be hearing a consistent economic theme in what Crystal's saying, and that's something that really begins to impact Clarksburg's religious and ethnic makeup in the decades immediately before and after the Civil War. We already talked about the Northwestern Turnpike, but only a decade and a half later, in 1852, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad arrived, more commonly called the B&O. Remember how remote Clarksburg was in 1788 when Bishop Asbury tried to get there on horseback? With the arrival of the railroad, suddenly it's possible to move people, goods, and livestock much faster. It took Bishop Asbury all day to go 20 miles through the wilderness, but according to an 1880 B&O timetable I found, you could get on a train in Baltimore at 8 a.m. and travel the 316 miles to Clarksburg by 8 p.m. It's a game-changer. But it's not just the folks who travel the railroad that changed the landscape of Harrison County. It's the folks who work on it, too. Because in the 1850s, Ireland was experiencing the terrible scourge known as the Potato Famine, a fungus that killed three-quarters of the potato crop, which, in conjunction with draconian English governmental policies, 
resulted in the deaths of a million Irish and the emigration of a million more to Great Britain and the United States. Desperate for work after landing in East Coast ports, many Irish men found employment building the rapidly growing railroads of the U.S. By 1856, there were so many Irish Catholics in Clarksburg that the headquarters of the Catholic Diocese in Wheeling decided that Wheeling priests couldn't get to Clarksburg frequently enough and started sending priests from the Weston Parish, a trip of only about 30 miles. Now, because Ireland had been under the thumb of the English crown for a couple of centuries at this point, most of these Irish immigrants could speak English, but many of their Eastern and Southern European counterparts could not, hence the need for separate Italian, Polish, or Hungarian Catholic churches. And those Greeks? Like Crystal said, 500 Greek families moved into the Summit Park neighborhood in Clarksburg to work in the steel mill there. Though many cleared out after the steel industry moved to Weirton up in the northern panhandle, about 100 families stayed, their descendants to be found in the area well into the 20th century. Also Catholic churches appearing in other smaller communities, again like Shinston. We talked earlier about the Methodists setting up and, and the Baptists growing in other little smaller towns. Same thing with the Catholic churches too because the Italian immigrants didn't just come here to Clarksburg. They went to Shinston to work in the mines. We had Spanish folks that went to work in Zesing in the spelter plant. The same thing in Amor, there's the zinc industry. We had Belgian, French folks that went to Salem. And so you see those Catholic churches pop up because of these new immigrants groups coming here for the industries. Were there any non-Christian religious groups represented here in any large numbers? Oh, yes. After the Civil War and into the 20th century, you start to see a Jewish population start to emerge. So they started out having their religious services in rented halls or in private homes. And then as more of them come and arrive, they have enough to form their own synagogue and they form the Tree of Life Synagogue. And then there's actually a, a Jewish Reform Synagogue as well. They, so we had two different ones operating in the early 20th century. So looking at it today, what you've just described is this rich ecosystem, if you will, of religious groups ethnic groups, racial groups, sort of a melting pot, if you will, here in Clarksburg due to a number of economic and social factors. How have these groups influenced the cultural life of the county both then and since then? Obviously, the Italian community has had a huge impact on the culture here, especially in Clarksburg. Since 79, I want to say they've had the West Virginia Italian Heritage Festival. They have religious service, but they have parades and they have food you know, food is very centric in a lot of people's cultures. And so when you think of the foods, especially centered around religion, I automatically think like Easter breads, which are very connected to the Italian community. A lot of folks, especially here in North Central West Virginia, are familiar with the Feast of the Seven Fishes Festival, which is a Christmas-centric celebration where on Christmas Eve into Christmas, you have all these different fish-centric dishes. We have a Greek food festival here, and it's celebrated that, that the Greek Orthodox Church in Summit Park is still over there, and there's, they still have a congregation. And every year, they have a food festival, and you can tour the church, and they have history stuff out, and it's two days, and it's one of my favorite things in Clarksburg it's just great it's not so much at present now but the vibrant Jewish retail establishments 
a lot when I talk to people about the old days in Clarksburg, they always talk about the department stores and the shops. And a lot of those shops were Jewish owned. Those retail establishments gave people so much joy when they would come down to shop and obviously were absolutely crucial to the economic life of this community. Furniture stores, fur shops, you name it, they had it. And some of the buildings that these stores used to be in are still around. Oh, just like doing research into Emancipation Day here in Harrison County. Those celebrations could be not just one day. Sometimes they were three days, but they all were together, regardless of denomination, to have a celebration of their freedom from slavery. Ox roasts and parades and they'd have speakers and songs. So those houses of worship for the black community, their social it obviously they tended to their, their religious life and their immortal souls, but just it was part of their social life. That I find impactful and their legacy. We also have Jesus Fest now. We have, there's several now non-denominational Christian churches in the area. They have actually a Jesus Fest. And so a lot of things that are still imprinted, even though maybe some of the smaller churches and small Catholic parishes are no longer with us, those impacts are still felt. Obviously, the Abner stories don't really focus on this so much, but is there anything that when you look at the Abner material and you you hear some of the things that Abner says, is there anything specific to Harrison County that you see reflected in that? Post was very much aware how religion was very important to people. The church was not just a place you went on Sunday. Sometimes it was your schoolhouse. Sometimes, again, that was where your social life was. That's who your friends and neighbors are. Why do we have a proliferation of all the little tiny churches? That's where that was your place to meet. And that's how folks back then, they make judgments. They make decisions based on the good book. And they're like, okay, this is what the good book says. And this is what I got to do. Can you recommend any resources, anything that you used for research, books, films, websites? I can always recommend Dorothy Davis's huge tome, History of Harrison County. She does a great job going into the history of almost all of these individual churches in the county and the background of how they got there and describing the schism. And she doesn't just talk about the Christian denomination. She talks about the Jewish community and the Greek Orthodox community and things like that and the African-American churches as well. So it's a well-rounded piece. There is a book out there about the history of the Seventh-day Baptist in West Virginia by Corliss Fitz Randolph. So if you're curious about that denomination, how they decided to come to West Virginia, or now well, now West Virginia, but then Virginia, was during the revolution, they had some really bad conflict between who were British loyalists and who were going to fight on the side of the colonials. And apparently that was just a bond that after the war could not be fixed. And so they were looking to move. So if you want to learn more about Seventh-day Baptists, and there's a great book by Harvey Harmer, who's one of our local historians. It's called The 150 Years of Methodism in Clarksburg, which I'm sure it talks about all the fun circuit riding days and the schisms and how they eventually reconciled. When they would, they did reconcile. They didn't probably reconcile. The Methodists did reconcile after, after many years of being apart. But he does a good job in kind of explaining that denomination, particularly in Clarksburg. How did you get involved with Harrison County history specifically? I applied for the Preserve West Virginia AmeriCorps program back in 2014. I was kind of at a crossroads personally with my life. I was making a decision if I was going to try to get back into public history or if I was going to go into education. They had a list of sites available, and I saw Harrison County, and I go, ooh. When I was in grad school, I worked with a lot of small museums, 
And I saw that there was a super big need for museum professionals to come in and help them stay sustainable, keep things fresh, execute programs, keep things funded. The, most of them are volunteers and they're not necessarily museum trained. When you're in college, especially if you're West Virginia, you're like, I'm going to get out of here. You know, I'm ready to get my wings and go, right? I wanted to do that, but I didn't want to do that because I saw that my state needed people like me to stay here to celebrate the awesome things about West Virginia. Because, you know, we've grown up, I've grown up with hearing all the negative things about West Virginia. And I'm like, there's a lot of cool stuff about West Virginia, especially in its history. Why aren't we shouting all this stuff to the rooftops? If I can be a part of that using my education and my passion for history, I want to do that. So I wanted to help these museums celebrate why they're amazing and why their community is amazing and why their people are amazing and all the weird and unusual things that happen here. You can use history to do that. You can get people to think critically. You can inspire people. I couldn't agree more with Crystal. As someone who wasn't born here, since I first came to West Virginia, I've been astounded at the rich tapestry of the state's history. From the burial mounds of an ancient civilization, the deadly struggles as Native Americans resisted the incursions of European settlers, the crucial early salt industry in the Kanawha Valley, the forging of the National Road through the Northern Panhandle, oppression and resistance in the Southern coal fields, technological renaissances in the chemical industry, and so much more. And there are groups and individuals all across the state who continue to work hard to preserve and develop West Virginia's historical resources, sometimes in meaningful ways as seemingly small as contributing to their church's cookbook or a written history of their congregation. Without generations of tireless, ongoing effort, we'd have little record of what West Virginia is and little idea of what we could be. Thanks again to Crystal Weimer for being a part of Mysterious Mountains. You'll see her again later in the season. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission. <laughs>